Hello, and welcome to Oh Boy, the podcast presented by Man Repeller. I'm your host, Jay Bume, and I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. And for those who enjoy this time of year, good for you. And for those of you who fall on the other side of the coin, you made it through. Congratulations. Today's guest is Alicia Yoon, who returned to her love of skincare after working in finance and consulting by founding Peach and Lily. Uh, she has a really interesting story, so let's get into it. Don't worry about it. Yeah, so yeah, where'd you grow up? Um, so I was born in Korea. Mm-hmm. And then our family moved to the States when I was one. Why did and they then, move to the States? So my dad, I'm not sure why he decided to do this. He grew up in Korea his whole life. Mm-hmm. He worked in, I think, London and France for a little bit. And then he was an engineer. Okay. And one day he decided he wanted to be a lawyer. And he decided he wanted to be an American lawyer. <laughs> so. <laughs> was he with your mom at the time? He was with my mom. What was her reaction to that? I mean, she was a... A violinist. Okay. She was um, very talented, um, playing in different orchestras and doing a lot of solos and teaching. So that was mm-hmm. her whole career. And she also only lived in Korea. And she had me, my older sister, who was three at the time. So she, and she had her whole family, her whole support network. Yeah. So she definitely told me she def was very surprised. I mean, it was a few years into their marriage, and she had just pictured life in Korea. Right. But I, I got my violin thing going. Yeah. Family's here. We're great. I'm with this engineer. We got a family. This is going well. Law, yeah. Like why? <laughs> Did you ever ask him like where that desire came from? Yeah, you know, I think back then in Korea in the 80s, um, starting from the 70s, there was a lot of kind of brain drain happening from the country where people were going abroad to the U.S. for mm. more opportunities. Korea, there's a lot of opportunities, but you kind of have to have gone to the best schools and worked in the biggest companies to have any upward mobility. And ironically, you know, my dad actually did go to the best college and was in a really big corporation. But I think the general sentiment is if you have an opportunity to go abroad, you know, it's sort of like pioneering out into a greater adventure. Right. And also if you have more experience abroad particularly either in Europe or in the U.S., then when you come back to Korea later, you know, you just bring more things to the table. Right. But I'm not sure, you know, I think he was like, well, I don't want to go to the U.S. and just be an engineer because things might not translate over directly. And he wanted to also have the opportunity to study something in the U.S. Mm -hmm. But he was always very academic, so applied to law school, got in. So he was just like, well... Why not? <laughs> so where did he go to law school? So he went to Vanderbilt in Columbia. Okay, so you guys moved to the city? So we moved at first to Tennessee. To Tennessee. And then to Nashville. <laughs> How did you, why, why? Oh, because Vanderbilt's Vanderbilt, down. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. By the time I was three, we were um, in New York City. Okay. In Manhattan. So lived in Manhattan, and then we moved out to Queens for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so grew up, you know, in New York. Very just run-of-the-mill childhood i guess well what does that mean i feel like especially in queens um it's not like the city you do have you know you can go outside and play Mm -hmm. but it's still a bit of a melting pot so you know a lot of diversity um like i you know my family is christian by background but my best friend was jewish so i went to hebrew school with her wait (laughs) just like for fun yeah she was like hey check this out yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just something she started doing, and I used to play with her after school, so I was like, well, I'll just go with you. <laughs> My parents were okay with it. The school was okay with it. Oh, that's awesome. So was it like a close-knit community? It wasn't super close-knit. The school I went to, I went to this um, elementary school actually out in Flushing. It was this alpha program where I think it was the Board of Education had decided that that one school in that zone, the standards were really low, so they wanted to create a class where the standards were a little bit more accelerated and um, they then kind of opened up that alpha program for anyone in that area, even if it's not necessarily in your zone, Mm -hmm. to take a test and then place into that class. So it was interesting because all of the, all of my classmates 
were the same from first grade all the way through the end of elementary school. Like you don't actually change classmates each year like Mm -hmm. most schools because you're always like in that program with your friends. And what what made that program different? Was it like for like more like advanced students or was it like more experimental? Like not like, not like is this, you know, what's the answer to this long division problem or like how's long division make you feel? (laughs) Was it one of those (laughs) kinds of places? I think it was a little bit of both. Oh, really? Okay. I think you needed... um, to do well on these book smarty type of tests. But then they also had this like, I remember interesting interview process where they wanted to look at your thought process. And I remember my classmates generally being very creative, very kind of independent minded. They like thinking outside the box, very artistic. How do you think that shaped who you are today? I think that program made a really big difference in my life because I was very, very shy Growing up, I couldn't even raise my hand to ask to go to the bathroom. That could cause a couple of problems. <laughs> yeah, I think it did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I was just very, very shy. Um, not really with my friends, but just in class. I didn't like to speak up. But in the program, you're getting to know your classmates every year that you just grow very comfortable with them. Mm-hmm. So by the time I was in fourth grade... My teacher actually told my mother, she was like, uh, so Alicia is way too shy, but when I talk to her individually, I like her thoughts and she needs to share them with other people and she needs to be able to like speak up about things. So she told my mom, I'm going to actually do everything I can to put her outside her comfort zone. And I think she has so much comfort with her peers right now that it's not going to be too traumatic. So she would do these things where... She'd say, go to the front of the classroom. I'm going to be all the way in the back and I'm not going to sit down until I can hear you read everything, like the next three pages. In so front I w- of the class? In front of the class. <laughs> was it in like a nurturing way or was it in like a drill sergeant way? Like A little bit of both. Oh my I mean, God. I found her to be really scary, but now <laughs> looking back, it was she was so nurturing and she really wanted to, you know, um, make sure I could kind of feel comfortable expressing my thoughts and she would always make me the leader on group projects um you know we didn't have a class like president system but she would be like you're a class president like it was just she did everything wow and it worked within the first semester I just felt so comfortable even today I have zero fear of public speaking which is kind of strange I mean I'm still a little bit you know on the shyer side like I don't like a lot of attention like if I'm at a dinner table with friends like I'd rather talk about how other people are doing, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. but like public speaking or presenting to senior management when I was a consultant, for example, in a boardroom, like you're just like good you know, to go. Yeah. Those things like I was just like, this is, you know, <laughs> I got this. Yeah. I had to read out loud <laughs> in fourth grade. Yeah. When I was prepared for this. So, yeah, I think that program was awesome for me. That's awesome. But besides being shy, you know, how else would you describe yourself as a kid? So I was a really big tomboy, Mm -hmm. huge tomboy, getting hurt all the time. Like my legs are still scarred so badly from like a nail going into my leg. Oh, what? Like falling everywhere, like scabs all over my knees. It was pretty funny because my mom was so desensitized to this whole thing. I remember it was like maybe the seventh time I came home and I had like blood coming from my my head (laughs) because I fell again. Yeah. And the first few times, oh my God, we have to go to the hospital. You could have a concussion. This is terrible. By the seventh time, eh, here's just a Band-Aid. Yeah, just, You'll be fine. Just, just, have, a, just have some juice. <laughs> yeah. It's more like, just, why? Just, yeah. I, whatever. <laughs> so did you go to like high school in Queens too? No. So when I was 12, mm-hmm. our family then moved back to Korea. So my dad went in-house to one of his clients actually. So he was... To, as a lawyer. As a lawyer, mm-hmm. yeah. So I finished up my last year of elementary school in Korea and was there all the way until college. Do you remember what that transition was like for you? It was really rough. Yeah. Um, a lot of the kids in my school in Korea, they had grown up together from kindergarten in that school. There was actually a foreign school closer to my house, but you needed a U.S. passport. Mm-hmm. And I was only a green card holder at the time. And so we, I went to school. It was two hours away, one way. So from 12 to 18, four hours. No. (laughs) In the bloody bus. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, So that in and of itself was like a really big transition. 
but the culture also was so different. You know, I grew up like very kind of... You're going to Hebrew school. I'm going to Hebrew school. Everything is so diverse. Like I'm in this like very nurturing kind of program at school yeah. where differences are accepted. Your thoughts are valued. And I go to this culture where um, a lot of Korean societal values were kind of part of the culture even at school where it's very hierarchical um you have to respect your elders just because they are older than you there was a lot of hazing everybody was hazing. a lot of hazing oh no like like bad stuff like oh yeah like it was like people were getting beat up if they weren't bowing to their upperclassmen oh my god students um girls too girls too i mean girls were like slapping each other like lots of cat fights but i mean guys were you know, I saw some of my guy friends get really badly beat up. I mean, it actually became a pretty big issue where the school had to really come down hard on that. But it was also like a lot of like mental hazing. You yeah, know, a lot of which is worse in a way. Totally. So there was that. And also my classmates and my friends when I was growing up in New York, it was all different socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So it was just like an environment where as a kid, you're not really focused on the material things. You're mm-hmm. just having fun with each other. But in this prep school, you know, everyone there is very wealthy. And so it was just a very different culture. Like we would have prom twice a year, but, you know, kids are getting like dresses made for thousands of dollars. And, what? you know, my mom's like, here's like maybe a hundred dollars. Go find something. Yeah. I don't know. You know, yeah. <laughs> what, what was going through your mind during that time? Were you like, I I got to get back to New York. I know, were you like, were you telling your parents about this kind of stuff? Like, what was their reaction? So my parents, I think kind of, I twisted their arm a little bit. I was really upset with the move. So I threw a, I I threw a fit, like a mini meltdown. Um, But before I had moved to Korea, I was a diver. I started springboard diving and that was a really big deal for me because my mom was always really worried about, you know, any kind of sport that's not swimming or tennis or any you know like gymnastics it's too dangerous so ever since I was little I was always begging her can I do gymnastics and she said no and one time I was at a swim maybe it was a practice or a meet and I saw divers and I was like look they fall into water how badly hurt can you get right and so she let me train um, or start taking lessons but three weeks into it my coach thought okay she's um you know, learning at a pretty rapid pace, let's have her do this like really crazy dive. I mean, it wasn't that crazy. It was a back <laughs> dive, but yeah. it was crazy for three weeks in. And so I cracked my head on the diving board. Oh. I passed out. I woke up with a huge, like just lump on my head. My mom was just bawling. She was like, you can't do this anymore. This is too dangerous. And for about three months, I was actually like very depressed. I wasn't, try- it wasn't like a rebellious thing. I just like lost my appetite. And so my mom finally was like, fine, you can go back, but just be careful. I was Mm. so excited. The first day I went back, I was jumping all over the board and fractured my foot. (laughs) And my mom was like, look, you you can keep diving. Just calm down. Just just take it it down a time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So when I was moving to Korea, the deal was because we're taking you out of your environment and we're moving you to Korea, you can really focus on diving as long as you do well in school. But in Korea, in the... In the U.S., I think the great thing is there's a lot of after-school activities. You can go to the YMCA, and it's just like a hobby. Mm -hmm. In Korea, especially with certain kinds of sports like gymnastics, diving, etc., there is no such thing as the YMCA. You are training to be in the Olympics. Like Everyone is like an athlete, a very serious athlete. So all of the divers I trained with, they all went to a sports school that was from 9 to 12. You're learning... I think it was just like math, English, Korean, maybe some history and some rotating and subjects. And then diving from, you know, after lunch from 1 p.m. to 11 or 12 at, at night? night. Oh, my God. And so for me, um, they wouldn't let me quit school. So I would get to the pool around 3.30. So I always felt a little behind. And mm-hmm. I was training until like 11 or 12 at night. That's so wild. And so when I was in school, I mean... Part of it was I wasn't used to my new environment, but I was also just really focused on sports. I was just napping during homeroom and lunchtime, and the nurse gave me permission to leave sometimes like, you know, half an hour early, and I would go to the pool. You know, it was that was all I was obsessed wow. with. Wow. 
And then, you know, where did you get with that? Like, what was the kind of turning point for you? Because are you still diving now? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I don't know. Maybe you are, and I'm being totally rude. I'm no, sorry. but no. um, <laughs> I haven't, I think, worked out in way too long, like years kind yeah. of long. <laughs> no, I, it was a huge part of my life. I was training eight hours a day um, from 12 all the way until my teen years. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to be a diver. I was um, training with the national team. I was hoping to go to the Olympics in 2000. I didn't want to do anything else other than dive, 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 and right. then be a coach. Right. And, you know, my parents had real problems with that. You know, they were like, well, what about college? Education's important. Um, and it was always like a fight that, you know, I think they were ultimately they just kind of gave in. They were like, you know, you do you and maybe later you'll want to go to college. Like they ultimately were very supportive just because I was so passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was doing well in the sports. So they were, you know, kind of rallying behind. So that was, you know, my big thing for a huge chunk of my upbringing or my, my childhood, I guess, my formative years. Mm-hmm. But then it was just kind of, so life is funny. I thought I don't know, ask me when I was 15, I would have said, oh my God, if my diving career didn't work out, that would have been like the most depressing life story. Right. Whereas now I'm really glad it didn't work out. I was overtraining. So I ended up getting uh, shin splints that turned into stress fractures that I didn't realize. I mean, it hurt a lot, but you're always kind of in pain training. So I thought, hmm, it's just super painful, but work I'll, through it. Yeah. yeah, I'll like tape up my legs and I'll be fine. But the stress fractures, I was diving on it too much where a lot of the bones like kind of micro shattered and a lot of my nerves were damaged and so one day I woke up and my legs were super swollen I couldn't really move them well it really was kind of overnight and then um, that was the first time I kind of told my parents like look I've been kind of in a lot of pain I just thought it wasn't a big deal I didn't want to worry anyone Mm -hmm. went to the doctor ran a bunch of tests and they were like you may not walk again oh my god Um, you certainly can't be training so I was in a wheelchair for a while and then doing physical therapy for a while. And, you know, the doctors were clearly wrong. I run and do all sorts of things, wear yeah. heels. Um, but, you know, after that, when I tried to train again as a diver, as a senior in high school, it just wasn't the same. My body just was so deteriorated. And my coaches were really generous to say, we'll give you six months to kind of get back to where you were. But if not, you know, it's not fair for you to just like take a spot on, you know, on the team. Right. Um, so, you know, it was just I didn't want to do it as a hobby, so I quit. And then I was really struggling, like emotionally, mentally, like, what do I do with my life? You know, I guess I'll go to college, but also like, I don't know, like, what do I want to study? What do I want my career to be? Um, so what do you do? So... It was also not all bad. It was the first time I had a social life. Mm -hmm. As a senior in high school. As a senior in high school Mm -hmm. where I was just in the pool. And, you know, by that point, it's a small school. So people were really excited that I can go out and hang out with them. So one day I was going to, there was like a masquerade party and I didn't have time to like go buy a mask. So I painted or like drew one on with eyeliner. And I've always liked doodling and drawing. And so... I was just walking down Gangnam in Korea and this really beautiful lady stops me and she's like, what beauty school did your makeup? I was like, I did it. Uh, (laughs) And so she was like, oh, like, why don't you come to our school and just take a test or you basically, it was like a drawing test as well as like applying makeup. Yeah. Just just random lady. Random gorgeous lady. Yeah. That I was just like totally just taken aback by her beauty. I was like, yeah, you know, she was like very distractingly beautiful. And I was just like, she was very charming. So I went to this school, <laughs> hole in the wall beauty school, where literally, you know, this is also back in the 90s and um, training to be a makeup artist or an esthetician, the standards are a little bit different um, than it is today. It's not as standardized. And so it was this hole in the wall school. And she was like, we have this great program that you can come to after school and just, you know, study as much as you want. And they had this makeup track and then they also have like a skincare track. Mm. And I have eczema and really dry skin. So, and I, it, being in a pool all day doesn't help. 
Yeah, I can't imagine all the chlorine. Yeah, just rashes, no g- bleeding. I mean, really bad. Yeah. So basically, this, the skincare tract was really interesting to me because it was the histology of the skin, a lot of science, but also it seemed like there was logic behind skincare versus... You know, you have no idea what you're putting on your face. How do you even apply things? So got really, really into that in a very nerdy way. Yeah, like when you, so when you go, yeah, when you went to the school, were you immediately like, oh, this is, this is amazing. I love this. Like, you yeah, were I was drawn like, to it. the eyeliner, that, that can wait. Yeah. I'm going to study like why my skin is bleeding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. So this is while you're in high school? You're yep. doing this? Yep. And then do your parents have like a plan for like what they wanted you to do? My parents at that point were super, super supportive of just like getting my happiness and hope levels back. And they mm-hmm. were just like, look, there's a future, even though it's not diving. I mean, so I wasn't thinking I'm going to be a diver my whole life. I was thinking I'll do it until I'm 50. Yeah. And then when I'm 50, <laughs> I'm magically going to have this other career. Yeah. And it's going to be something in business. <laughs> and maybe in like, I don't know, like, you know, potentially even like running a business. My parents would be like, that is so unrealistic. Yeah. There are steps to get there. <laughs> yeah. But then again, your dad was just like, hey, I'm going to go be a lawyer in yeah. America. So you always exactly. had that card you could pull, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So did you did you go to college? So, you know, my senior year, I applied to colleges. I ended up coming back to New York, went to Columbia. Well, how were you feeling when you got back to New York? So it was very jarring for me. I think the culture shock was much more jarring as a senior and then becoming a freshman in college than it is like when you're 12. Right. So Korea, especially at the time, a much more conservative culture. Um, People are socially more conservative. Now it's a little different, but you don't have like non-exclusive relationships. You don't talk about your personal life like much. Even mm. back then, like even what you wear, you, you know, if I'm wearing like really, really short shorts, it's like something that, you know, you'll people will kind of look a little bit. Oh, wow. It's different now for sure. But this is, you know, again, this is like back in the 90s. So by the time I got to Columbia... Not only am I thrown now back into a totally diverse scene, like diversity in every sense of the word, I think, compared to Korea. It was also, there was like a housing mistake. So my freshman year, I was in this like suite with all juniors, all guys, all jocks. (laughs) And just you? (laughs) And then me and like my roommate. Oh, man. Um, So, and they were like just so rowdy. They kind of reminded me of characters from like American Pie a little bit. Oh man, like you're on a floor full of like stifflers. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I mean, I became very good friends with them, but in yeah. the beginning I was like, wow. Yeah. The other thing was in Korea, you drink when you're younger. Like it's not such a big deal to drink alcohol when you're in high school. And mm-hmm. like it's not as strict as it is here. Right. So when I got to college it was also weird for me that everybody was like oh my god let's drink and get hammered so I actually became very like super nerd in college like I loved I loved class I loved my professors I loved what I was studying also because my school in Korea it was a great school but the quality of education I think wasn't that amazing a lot of the teachers Um, Some of them were really great, but a lot of them were really young. They were just looking for like a teach abroad experience. So they didn't really, you know, bring a lot of like robust teaching Mm -hmm. or quality to the table. You know, it's different. It's different. Whereas at Columbia, you know, the professors were amazing. And so I got really, really into just like, you know, figuring out different things I was studying in school. And what um, were you digging? So philosophy was something I was super excited about. Um, So, you know, I would go to like every office hour of one of my philosophy (laughs) professors, like write extra papers just because I was interested in the topic. Um, So and then also you're in New York City. So there's a lot of opportunities to explore different career opportunities. Um, And I thought, you know, everyone at Columbia, like at that point, uh, I think. So I graduated in 2004 and I think up until then, even 20 to 25% of the class then go on to law school. 
Um, of it's Colum- like a, of the people at Columbia, yeah, oh, wow. or like at least apply. Yeah, it's like some really ridiculously high percentage. Um, and kind of you know, given my dad was a lawyer, I was like, maybe I'll just go to law school. So I'll like, you know, study philosophy and we'll see what happens. But at that time, you know, a lot of people started going into banking, like finance, mm-hmm. career paths. So every summer and kind of during the school year, I would dabble in those areas like, like internship taking internships yeah. yeah just to see if i liked it um, what was that like do you remember i really didn't like it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i just actually really hated it what was it like like i really disliked just looking at capital structures of a company i was like this is like not that fun for me yeah i don't even i can't um, even imagine yeah it was just like i'm like i don't want to read another financial statement like i really don't care but you know i just thought i guess with jobs it's never going to be fun. And, you know, let's just kind of keep going down this this path. So That's what you thought. Yeah, I thought like a job is a job. It's supposed to be work. Like, why would I expect a job to be something that you wake up and go like, you know, so, ex- you know, excited you bounce to out do of it. Yeah. bed for. It's not the playtime. It's, it's, it's a job. Right. I don't know why I thought that. I think it's because like my first experiences in internships were so bad that I just thought like, and I kept doing financial internships, so or finance internships. All of them were bad, and I just thought like, well, work is bad. Oh, man, work sucks. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh boy. And I was like, yeah, work does suck, but yeah. I guess that's part of like being an adult. Did that change for you? It did. So after my two years at Goldman, um, most people in my group move on to private equity jobs or go to hedge funds and do more things in finance. And I was interviewing, kind of just like going down this like path of inertia and interviewing with private equity funds. And I just hit a wall and I was like, wait, I, I don't want to keep doing this. Let me pause. Like, what am I excited about? And what made you do that? I think just like the sheer dismal outlook of like, as I'm like interviewing for these jobs and sitting there, you know, talking about how I'm going to be so committed. I just, I just like hit a wall where one day I walked out in the interview, which went well, but I was like, I just lied through my teeth. I said all of these things that I like, not even close to meaning. Um, and seeing that basically it would be these grueling hours of doing work that I really disliked. Mm-hmm. I just like walked out and thought, I just, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Was that a hard decision to come to? Um, no, it was just like an epiphany, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like, wait a minute, maybe I can actually ex- explore different things. So then what did you do? So I started um, thinking about all the different little things I did while I was at Goldman and just trying to rack my brain for like any moment I had where I was like, this is kind of interesting work. And what I really liked was whenever we had to do due diligence on companies and I talked to the managers at these companies, they would talk about their operations and they would say, well, our numbers didn't look so good because we actually hit a hiccup and um, we our production cycle just got longer or, you know, whatever it was right. about like the ins and outs of the company. And I thought that was, that conversation was so interesting to me. What can I do where I can like actually be inside a company operating versus like doing all the things like finance analysis and I was then I started then going down this rabbit hole of like researching different like just big corporations I can go to Mm -hmm. but that was also confusing because there's so many different like functions you can go into strategy into marketing into um, manufacturing you know and also which company and so then um, my friends were like well consulting might be a good fit because you actually get to do a lot of different things within a company's operations, but as an outsider and you get this bird's eye view, it was like alarm bells going off where I was like, oh my God, like ding, 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 this is the right answer. Like this is going to be great. So I started researching a lot about different consulting jobs and companies. And it was a little bit of a roundabout path because a lot of the companies were like, you're not straight out of college. You're not straight out of your business school program. You're kind of this in-betweener, like your off cycle is what they kept saying. What does that mean? It off sounds cycle? so extreme, right? Like you are off cycle. You are you are disrupting the system. <laughs> we can't have that. It was just it was like this. There, it's just it's just so rigid. A lot of these consultancies, like they have a track. Were you out of school at this time? Yeah, I was like yeah. two years out of working at Goldman, and you know they usually pick 
analysts who are straight out of college they were like you have two years of experience what do we do with that i'm like i don't know you can pay me the same i don't even care like just give me a job you know so accenture had this one program where they were actually looking specifically for former bankers and they were totally like this entrepreneurial group totally okay with like all sorts of backgrounds so went there for a couple years and loved it had such like so much fun working on all these different program like projects my first project which is now super public news was with time warner cable and the question was should we invest like billions of dollars in building out like our um wireless business so that was like such an interesting pro like problem and question to tackle and um you know i mean most of my thoughts were like i really you want me to help you answer this question? Yeah. i don't know yeah um <laughs> Yes, maybe. Yeah. Um, Signs point to maybe, <laughs> yeah. and that's my that's my official statement on that. <laughs> yeah. Next, who's next? <laughs> but we're done here. Yeah, so. we're done. We're good. Yeah. Um, but my boss at Accenture was really great, and he was um, he actually had been at Goldman before, had been at McKinsey, and he also had gone to Harvard Business School, and he was like. Alicia, you should go to business school. I think you'll really enjoy it. And I was like, well, I took my LSATs. I was always going to go to law school, I think. He's like, why Why would you go to law school? You're like four years working You're off already. cycle, man. Yes. You're so <laughs> you're, off cycle now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so he was like, why don't I give you a week of free vacation to write your apps? And if you write your apps, you can just keep it. Um, I'm taking off like my boss hat and putting on my friend hat. I think this is going to be great for you super supportive can't thank him enough looked into like what an mba would entail i didn't you know i didn't know too much about the program but the Mm -hmm. more i looked into it i was like this sounds great you're like you know studying all sorts of different things but mostly you're meeting like amazing people from all over the world and kind of traveling and partying for two years and just really um broadening your perspective on lots of different topics in the business world it just it just seemed very uh less academic but more Mm hands-on um so yeah, applied and then went to HBS for um, from 2008 to 2010. When I first heard about investment banking and people used to call it an eye bank, I thought it was like a bank for eyes. And I was like, really? Oh, there's, there's a some... lot of money in eyes. It's <laughs> like, there's a bank where they store eyes? Why? Yeah. <laughs> so you're, so you go, so you're up in, in what, Cambridge? Um, yeah. So in yeah. Boston for a couple of years. Did you like it? It was fine. I think I'm much more of a super, super city, city girl, like New yeah. York City, Seoul, or, you know, two cities that really never go to sleep. Everything is instant access. I think that is my comfort zone. Mm. Um, but I loved, I loved school. I loved um, being in business school and the whole community of students. And I mean, it, it was phenomenal two years couldn't have asked for better when you're ready to transition out of there what were the things that were going through your head so in between business school I don't know why I did this but I still had this small itch to see if I would like finance (laughs) yeah (laughs) so you know I just have to learn things the hard way yeah so in my mind I thought I love traveling so I thought why don't I do private equity in Mongolia and if private equity in Mongolia, in this like interesting country I'm exploring, is not more fun than consulting in New York, uh-huh. then private equity in New York is certainly not going to be as fun as consulting in New York. Okay. That was like this weird logic in okay. my mind. I think mainly to justify why I should be in Mongolia for eight weeks. <laughs> so I go to Mongolia for eight weeks. And sure enough, I don't like private equity. But I I had so much time to think because there's really not that much to do in, Mong- in Mongolia. I was in the Gobi Desert every weekend and just traveling with like another classmate of mine who was also an intern um, at the fund we were at. And, you know, I got to thinking, so my dad's a lawyer, but my mom's dad, my grandfather, he's an entrepreneur. And he's a serial entrepreneur. He's done amazing, amazing things. Very interesting guy, um, you know, as an example to kind of like the really progressive out of the box kind of mind he has, he adopt he has eight kids of his own and um, he adopted my uncle who's black and my aunt who's white. And, you know, Koreans 
are not into adopting, let alone like non-Koreans. And that hurts my heart to hear that. That the, yeah, yeah, Koreans are all about like who is, you know, who is your bloodline. So, I mean, it's, it's very different now, but back then, you know, it was just like not... It, it's pretty sad. Like after the Korean War, there was lots of orphans and those orphans were like the biggest export of Korea. So having a family like that, you know, th- our family is so loving and just very, very um, independent minded. It's mm-hmm. not like you just follow whatever society says. And seeing my grandfather's life and seeing how kind of autonomous he was because he was an entrepreneur and all the different adventures he would have doing all sorts of different businesses and his life was like so ideal in my mind because also because of his financial success he can think about things like how do I give back to the community um, personally and what would that look like and you know he started this foundation for needy students in Korea and he was able to you know, shape the program and really think about the issues. And, you know, it's just really cool. So different than I think um, my dad's path where he was in a company and, you know, um, you know, much more of a corporate life. And so it got me thinking when I was in Mongolia, like, I think I want actually a life that's much more similar to my grandfather's. And, you know, I was thinking, well, what can I do? And at the time, I noticed that whenever I would go back to Korea, like especially in fashion, Korea is the world of fast fashion. It's like you can go from concept to shelf in like 48 hours. Wow. So I was like, why don't I bring over like amazing fast fashion pieces from Korea and debut a lot of these upcoming designers in the U.S.? So because I had so much time to think and plan this when I was in, in Mongolia. In the Gobi Desert. In the Gobi Desert, <laughs> yeah. very dramatically. I would like draw on the sand. Um, <laughs> I launched this startup where I didn't have the creativity to come up with a good name. So it was Alicia Yoon Showroom, where I debuted about 50 designers, street designers, upcoming designers, and just kind of did this whole lookbook photo shoot and um, got it all done in three weeks. Wow. It was just like this whirlwind, let's just launch this. And you did this in New York? So I then debuted the showroom in New York. Mm -hmm. And it went really well. Um, You know, we didn't have too many trunk shows, but every time we would do like a showroom, 95% of the inventory would sell out in like three hours. But, you know, part of the issue was sizing. Like everyone's like a size two in Korea. I mean, like that's such a small market here. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and these designers are like, you can't just make these clothes bigger. Like bigger, taller people have different proportions. Like we have to redesign it. And so scalability was like a really big problem. And, um, you know, at that time I thought, I don't want to do like one store. I want to do like a business that can really scale and this is probably not it. So, um, after business school, I thought, well, I want to figure out what kind of startup I could do. But in the meantime, I loved consulting. So I'll go back into consulting. Right. So went to, you got to keep the lights on. Got to keep the lights on. Yeah. Um, So then I went to the Boston Consulting Group and most of my clients were beauty clients. Um, And this was after after Harvard, after after, um, HBS. Yeah. Cool. Um, So back in New York, being a consultant again and kind of doing a lot of research and seeing that a lot of beauty companies were actually like Western beauty brands, like really big ones. They have been going to Korea since maybe the 90s to formulate their beauty products. Really? And that was exactly my reaction. I was like, really? <laughs> why, why, how come no why one knows was, about this? No, why was that? So they were like, you know, talking to these like R&D folks, they were like, oh yeah, beauty insiders all kind of know, like a lot of the formulations, some of the most advanced ones are coming out of Korea and that's where you go. So for me, that was very interesting because after high school, I was, I stayed a skincare junkie. So I read a lot of books about skincare, like, you know, once the internet was something that had much more information on it, like went down every skincare rabbit hole about. Yeah. With like message with, boards and stuff. Oh my God. Message <laughs> boards, like Korean ones, especially because yeah. they're so into skincare there. Just like learning about the latest things that were coming out of it, um, out of, you know, just different skincare R&D houses, like the latest formulations, the latest ingredients. 
and then always like giving my friends facials for fun. Mm-hmm. So when I was a consultant at Accenture, I remember like one of my project teammates got wind of the fact that I, I can give facials. So my partners, like different people on our team, they would come to my hotel room, yeah. like lay down on the bed, force me to bring products oh, to no. like whatever state we were in. And yeah. I would give them facials. I'm like, this is the short end of the stick. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> And in business school, I would give my friends facials. But you enjoyed you enjoyed it. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I would always use a lot of products from Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, and people loved it. But I always thought it's because of the experience. Like, you just kind of, um, you know, spas do well in selling products through because you love the experience there. Right. And, you know, so I just thought, like, yeah, you know, I these products are great. But I wonder if they would think it's great if they just bought it in, like, Sephora. And also, I think it's great. But maybe it's, like, it's great for my skin. I'm used to it. Um, so it was very like a light bulb went up when I thought, oh, it's actually good and people like it because of the science. It's not just like an experience thing or it's not my arbitrary perspective. Like legitimately some things are just better. And then in 2011, Sephora launched this brand called Dr. Jart, which is a Korean beauty brand. And they had a product called BB cream that took on the beauty scene, um, in a small way, but it was a new product category that launched Mm -hmm. and, you know, Dior came out with a BB cream. And, um, what was funny to me is that BB cream was ubiquitous in Korea, like five years prior. Right. And it was like this new thing in the U S in 2011. And also back then in 2011, the beauty blogging world was still a little bit more nascent, but a lot of beauty bloggers were talking about this whole BB cream thing. Because they were like investigative very yeah. much so. Yeah. And they were like, well, Dr. Jart wasn't like the first brand <laughs> in doing Korea. doing some exposés on it. Yeah. yeah. They're like, why? We're going to get to the f- bottom of this cream craze. Yeah. And they're also like, why is Sephora carrying this brand? Like, it's not like they were particularly like the most famous for BB cream in Korea. And looking into it, this one blogger was like, well, I think it's because it's what was available in the U.S. They had a distributor or they had plans to come here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, well, you know, there's so many amazing products and product categories that people don't see on any like retail shelf here. Um, and that brand or product or those innovations don't reach the U.S. until like five years later mm-hmm. and it was more like personal frustration like why do I need to constantly be this mule and like go back to Korea and have like always a suitcase full of like why can't I <laughs> just shop beauty, it here yeah, you know product mule um so then you know it just kind of started like I started thinking about what you know wouldn't it be cool if all these beauty innovations from Korea or you know anywhere else in the world was available real time globally like it's so antiquated like everything is it like seems so obvious to you yeah the world is so flat and so many other industries like why is it that beauty is like so slow and like getting innovations like everywhere mm-hmm. there's a great product that helps skin stay more youthful in a very gentle and natural way i don't i don't know every country should have access right, to that right <laughs> so you thought you had something there yeah so i was really excited about it so without doing too much additional thinking in 2012 in the summer i just kind of you know told bcg i think i'm gonna leave and do this um did you know what you needed to do to make it happen uh, zero idea (laughs) (laughs) i got this idea i'm gonna go do it yeah i'm gonna thanks see you later (laughs) that was exactly (laughs) what i did (laughs) so then what do you do what's that first day when you wake up and you're not going into their office like what is going through your mind so bcg was really supportive by the way great place to work i love that company they were Mm -hmm. like why don't you just finish your project? And then um, even if your last day like is sometime in the summer, we'll just keep paying you like an extra two weeks. And then also, even if you leave your job formally, the company will pay you out for another two months okay. with insurance, like amazing company. So um, I think during the two months where I was still like collecting my salary, but just not working, I was doing like very perfectionist like ideation things I was like well the company business model would be this and then I would tweak it and make this like beautiful presentation like did a lot of non-executing related things and just kind of like a lot of like vision setting and mood boarding and I think it was mainly because I didn't know where to start yeah and I just made me feel productive right and I was trying to hone in on like a business model like 
do we just sell on our website directly to consumers? Do we only sell to retailers? Do we do both? Um, do we do a subscription box? Do we do our own brand? Do we only do content? You know, so many different options. Right. No idea what I was doing. And then it was this like cold reality because also you need beauty brands who want to work with you. And I, for I don't know why, for whatever reason, I thought, of course. Yeah, you just send them an email. They would be like, yeah, we want to do this. Be excited yeah. about this mission. Um, so I go to Korea thinking, well, first I make some phone calls and everyone's like politely just hanging up on me pretty much. The companies that you're calling in Korea. The companies, yeah, some of them have like U.S. offices. Yeah, um, but just nobody, people are like, no, we don't want to yeah. do this. I mean, we also do Japanese beauty brands and, you know, Japanese, Korean beauty brands, all of them were like, I mean, they would just ask the typical questions like, what other brands are we going to be sold alongside? Um, how many consumers do you have? What, where is your store? And it's like, oh, none of that exists yet. Oh, no, no, this is just an idea I have. <laughs> and I was like, great news. There are no other brands, so you it won't be brand diluted. Yeah. Um, so then I realized, okay, I need to go to Korea and meet people face to face and try mm -hmm. to get these brands on board. And, but one thing I did realize early on, or one thing I was very passionate about, is that I did not want to sacrifice on the quality of the brands that we curate. Um, I wanted to make sure that um, I start with the internet and look for all the different reviews out there the community messages board messages looking at the intensity around the products like the brand doesn't need to be huge right for example avino and olay are huge brands here but you have smaller brands like tata harper that have this intense following and buzz around them and it doesn't mean olay is better just because they're bigger right um it's just different marketing budgets and different parent companies and so just looking for being very agnostic to size, just looking for the brands that you just feel that momentum around where people just genuinely love the brand. Also talking to the top dermatologists, estheticians, beauty houses, even celebrities, store directors to really just do my research and understand what's next, what's coming, why is this best, who's really shopping it. Is it tourists because there's some marketing event? Is it very skincare savvy local woman. Um, also talking to top and upcoming R&D labs to say what's next in the cutting edge field of beauty in Korea. Did you have like a grand plan when you went out to Korea to, to do all of this research and talk with all these people? Or was it something you kind of figured out as you were going along? So the research part was a grand plan. That was like part of the two months. That was like the one thing <laughs> I figured out that yeah. I needed really get the best on board and who to talk to to figure that out. And I think also just I was excited to do that and learn and really roll up my sleeves and figure out, like look under the covers of every brand. Um, and just for some perspective, five years ago, there were 1,200 beauty brands in Korea. Today, there are 9,000. This is how crazy the beauty oh scene God. is there. Yeah. And so basically, you know, I knew, okay, I mean, I think when I started, there were maybe a few thousand, not 9,000. So I thought, okay, I know that not all beauty brands are created alike. And I want only the very best for Peach and Lily because the best foot forward of Korean beauty needs to be what makes splash in the U.S. Because other than Dr. Jart and a couple other Korean beauty brands, Sephora, the department stores, Ulta, QVC, like no one was selling Korean beauty brands. Mm, so it was kind of wide open. Totally wide open. Um, people just didn't like n those thousands of amazing brands. Like no one is really doing anything in the U.S. And yeah. so because it's a market that, you know, needed to be created and um, we had the opportunity because no one else had really focused on it that much um, in these kind of national retail channels, really thinking, okay, well, if we're going to put, if we want to pitch some Korean beauty brands that, is in our portfolio to these huge channels, we want them to be the best ones. Right. So, you know, that the research was a fun and easy part. So then I had a short list of, let's say, I think at the time, like 30 brands I really wanted on board. And of course, all of them were like, no. What was the, why were they so hesitant? So with beauty, it's very, like branding is so important. And Rightfully so. They know nothing about Peach and Lily. We have zero website. We have no like... But you have the name. We have the name. Yeah. 
Like, you have the domain name. The domain name is awesome, guys. That yeah. should be a good sell. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, they had no idea. I don't know. What is the site going to look like? What is our customer service going right. to be like? What are the other brands? How will you represent us? You also have no funding. Like, yeah. really, can you market us? And like, it made zero sense so, for but, so any of these brands. When What was the turning point? When did people start coming on board? So I basically got really stubborn. I was supposed to be in Korea for four weeks and I was there for five months. And luckily, you know, my parents still live there. So I had a place to stay and I ended up just subletting my place out in New York. But Mm -hmm. for five months, um, it was pretty nerve wracking because four months later, still zero brands. And I guess four months later, I could have compromised a bit and started working with brands that weren't on my list that Mm -hmm. actually at that point were interested in working with us. But I thought... This is a risk, but I, in my gut, knew if we aren't starting with the best or if we ha- if we compromise our standards, it's a slippery slope and the whole business model will unravel. Right. Like you just need great products. And so um, I thought, well, if I can't get these great products on board, maybe it's just too early to do this. Maybe brands... Um, Or maybe the sequencing is wrong. Maybe I need to raise funding first or, you know, figure something out. So I thought, let's give it six months total and let's see what I can do. And on month five, one of the brands I really wanted, um, Be The Skin, they were, I must have met with them a bunch of times. And this one time, you know, the founder wanted to interview me with like one of his friends who do these like grueling interviews and he just kind of, I don't know, like, I don't, I don't know why he wanted his friend to also be there, but we all went out for dinner and I started talking about my background in skincare and just how passionate I am about it and why I really want their brand. And I think all the things I mentioned about their formulation and why I think, um, they're at such a different, um, standard than some of the other pure brands I'm seeing. I think that kind of showed them, okay, at least she does have some sort she of standard she's, she's really trying to stick to. Was that the first time that you talked to a company in that way? Um, no, it wasn't. Okay. I think it was the repetition, honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was like, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. I've been here for five months. Mm-hmm. Let's meet again. Yeah. I, I really want you guys. So they finally said, okay. So then after the first brand, and it was a great brand, was on board, the second brand was a little bit easier. Then we got really lucky. The third brand was a very well-known and big brand that signed on board. So by that point, the fourth, fifth, and sixth were easy to sign on, easier. Right. So after um, the end of the fifth month, with six brands on board, um, came back to the U.S. And these brands, it was you know, the other thing is I didn't want to sacrifice on the commercial terms because if we, you know, in my mind, I was like, I'm going to invest a lot in marketing these brands and really helping them create brand awareness from zero. Um, That's a lot of work. So as much as I'm committing to them, I would want these brands who are equally invested in sticking with us. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I wanted exclusive rights to distribute them in North America and, you know, out the door with no website. I mean, that was also part of why it took so long to sign them on. Right. Um, and I know it was kind of just trying to get the best of everything with not a lot in my hands. But that was, I don't know, that was a standard. That was what I thought would make the business model cohesive, but also um, just the curation standard just couldn't be compromised up front. So you have these brands on board. And then what was the next thing? Were you, did you have to like find out about like international like import export rules and oh, like, yeah. like it just yeah. to me it just it just seems so it seems like such a complicated undertaking. Um, yeah, so it was everything from what are the FDA regulations to the duties that we have to pay on these products to how do we import? What's the bond? How do we insure? Where do we store these products? Um, are there shipping routes that would affect these products or not? Um, who are the best carriers to you? So it was a lot of just really figuring out. I mean, the internet was like my BFF. Yeah, um, but this is just you doing it by yourself at this point still. Yeah, and then um, a few months after I started, um, my co-founder at the time had joined. 
And then she left last year. Mm -hmm. So she was there um, starting 2013. Um, And so, you know, that was also that January we launched our website. Right. What was that moment like? What What was the moment when it started to feel real? I think when the first brand was signed on, it mm-hmm. felt real because yeah. it was like we have to do this a now. contract yeah. on paper. Yeah, <laughs> I promised them a lot of things. So, and, and what were like what were the early like um, you know kind of trials and tribulations that you were dealing with trying to run a successful you know website that's importing products, beauty products from halfway around the world. I think. I think the biggest challenge is that. I realized early on that if we were to just do internet sales or just sell to retail partners or just do content, the magic wouldn't really happen Mm -hmm. where you're able to really educate an entire market about a whole new beauty philosophy and beauty brands and beauty products. So, you know, just kind of, I guess it was more of a hypothesis. So put a stake in the ground and said, we need to do it all. We need to have our website running. We need to partner with Sephora, QVC, Target, et cetera, and sell our products to them. We also need to have a blog. We need to have social media presence. We just have to do it all. And Mm so I think learning like each part of the business requires such different kinds of thinking um, and running all these parallel processes. Like, you know, right now, we sell our brands to Sephora. So they're in all doors in Sephora right now. QVC created the first ever Asian beauty show for us. So oh, wow. it was on QVC um, starting this summer. What um, That's amazing. What, was it harder for you to get the original brands on board with you than it was to get these partners here involved? It was harder to get the brands on board. Yeah. And then um, it was difficult in the beginning to get anyone on board in the U.S. market. So mm-hmm. when we launched the website, we had a built-in customer base of people we had outreach to saying we're launching and they were already inherently like interested, aware of Korean beauty products and interested. But that's not like a big business. And in order to kind of um, get scale, we have to be where people are just shopping beauty. And so um, when I launched the company in 2012, no one was interested in Korean beauty. Like I must have met with so many different buyers and editors and it was all very much like, oh yeah, that's cool, that's great, but like not really interested. Like right. our our reader or like our shopper isn't going to find this relevant. Um, and so for about a year and a half, I would say until the end of 2013, um, it was definitely a big uphill climb. It was just kind of having faith and hope that the writing is in the wall and with enough education, enough outreach, enough talking about the topic, like it's going to reach a tipping point where people are aware and find this interesting. Um, But prior to that, I would just focus on, okay, let's at least set up the infrastructure of the business, like have the distribution business going, have our operations ready at least have our warehouse be edi compliant let's just kind of set up the infrastructure so that when that tipping point happens we're all set up to scale right and it was kind of like i don't know a little bit of like building noah's ark type thing (laughs) where's the rain yeah (laughs) you know how do you see yourself fitting into the beauty world now um it's been such a tremendous last two years because consumers retailers, um, different media outlets, TV, you know, there's such a warm welcoming and interest in Korean beauty products and philosophies and rituals and so forth. So that's just been, I think, the most rewarding thing to see that happening. And because we were one of the first to really pioneer the space as far as the education and marketing and bringing over these products Mm -hmm. goes, I think um, being able to inform how people view Korean beauty products and how, like uh, which products can be curated and then pitched onto big retailers, you know, just um, being sort of that pipeline and hub. It's been a position that's, 
you know, we, we, we've been taken, um, taking really seriously, being very thoughtful about, um, really excited about. Um, and I think because Korean beauty products and the Korean beauty industry is so innovative, it's a really interesting opportunity to bridge that gap and push beauty globally forward faster as you see innovation happening or innovation being exported faster. Um, but I also think because I am going to Korea so often on average every six weeks mm-hmm. um, and seeing so much of what's happening, I think the most exciting thing is seeing all the information in Korea, but also understanding how that translates to the U.S. market. So, for example, um, we bring over these new innovations all the time, and certain things just don't ever really catch on here. Right. Um, and certain things only catch on if there's a lot of videos or if there's a lot of social media, Instagram um, support, if there's editorial support. Um, maybe some of them, it only works for seeing offline and so, or some only with a sample first. And so understanding which innovations will work, like which people, which, uh, what people will respond to, but also how to actually educate people about new innovative products, that information is, I think, those insights are something that we've come to value a lot. That's mm-hmm. pretty proprietary to us. That's cool. What, you know, what are the things that inspire you to keep going? Oh my God, I think... You know, to be honest, the last few years have been grueling. Yeah. Really, really bad hours because I'm talking to Asia all the time at night. Um, and then just doing these crazy long haul flights. Honestly, if it weren't skincare, which I've always been really into, and I find the topic like, you know, really fascinating, I probably would have quit like <laughs> last year. Just yeah. like, I'm not doing this anymore, guys. <laughs> you run with it. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, just excitement around uh the topic and then every time i go to korea it's so re- it's like really energizing because there's so many new things coming out that i'm like oh my god like i can't believe this teeny tiny lab made the first botox in a bottle yeah like really that's where we're gonna launch soon wow um and it's like the only company in the world to have like cracked that code so it's patented every which way these huge manufacturers are like knocking on their door to try to license it but they're not going to and they're they're going to really just push through with their own brand are there just like mad scientists working in these labs to like come up with these things there's like these huge labs and then you have these like teeny tiny labs with yeah. like chemists who are just brilliant who are just like working on you know the holy grail of youth and it's like it's so cool yeah, to talk to cool. them and see these things like in bottle form after you've talked to them for like two years yeah that's awesome what's next for you so we just launched our first offline store and we couldn't be more excited because, you know, we did it um, in partnership with Macy's. Oh, wow. So our first store will be, it's it's in Macy's in the Queens location. Oh, that's amazing. Um, bring it back to Queens. Bring it back to Queens. Hell yeah. Full circle. We actually, we wanted to do that store because that location does really well in skincare. Um, so we thought it would be a very iconic kind of first location. And it's really exciting because our neighbors are... Estee Lauder, Kiehl's, Bobby Brown, Christian Dior, I think Shiseido, Clarisonic, like really big global brands. And then your thing that you built. And then Peach and Lily. That's really cool. Um, so that's just been, you know, the last kind of since this past summer, working on um, everything from designing the store with this amazing architect we've been working with, John Rollins. Yeah. Great, great, great guy. Um, super talented so you know I think just it never renovated even like a bathroom in my life before yeah always lived in a rental unit um so figuring out you know when Macy's was like this is your playground you're the creative director figure this out you know and so I kind of feel like with a startup it's exciting because as you build new things to your business everything is new you know, just flying by the seat of our pants here. And I think that's what makes it, I think to your earlier question, exciting and, you know, keeps everything kind of fresh and nothing gets mundane or routine. That's great. But yeah, I think I would hope to see um, 
a pure play model, especially for beauty where you're only online is, is pretty tough. Um, you know, we're thankful to have so many great retail partners like Sephora and QVC and Target and Urban Outfitters and so forth. But I think having our own store where the experience is something that we can control, it's going to be, it's a very high tech store. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of different components of the store where you can really understand your skin type better. The store is also organized not by brand, which is a little bit different. It's organized by the steps of the Korean beauty ritual and by, you know, kind of skin concern. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, really kind of expanding our distribution channel. That's a big focus for us. That's cool. Alicia Yoon, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks.